You're now listening to episode 49 of the Real Estate CPA Podcast. Your source for all things real estate accounting and tax. Here we reveal our secrets that can save you thousands in taxes, streamline your accounting process, and help grow your business. Stay tuned to hear insightful interviews with industry experts, successful real estate investors, and current clients on what strategies they use to grow their business and how they steer clear of Uncle Sam. Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in. Brandon Hull and Thomas Costello here today with Brian Burke, CEO and president of Praxis Capital, a vertically integrated real estate investment company founded in 2001. In this episode, we discuss building a vertically integrated real estate investment company, underwriting, and how an accounting system impacts investor reporting and tax filing. Are you ready to take your real estate investing business to the next level? Whether you're a seasoned vet or just getting started, the Multifamily Investor Nation Summit coming up on June 27th to June 29th has something for everyone. With a stellar lineup of expert speakers with proven track records for success, learn from the best and apply everything directly to your multifamily business. Speakers include Dan Hanford, Joe Fairless, Matt Faircloth, Ben Leibovich, Michael Blanc, James Ang, Brian Burke, our very own tax strategist, Thomas Costelli, and many more. Don't miss this incredible event designed specifically for today's brightest and boldest multifamily investors. Visit www.apartmentevent.com and use promo code THOMAS to receive $100 off the full access pass. Again, that's www.apartmentevent.com and use the promo code THOMAS for $100 off the full access pass. We'll see you there, but for now, let's jump right into today's episode. Brian, thank you for taking the time to come on the show today. Can you give our listeners a little bit of info on how you got started in the syndication, uh, you know, real estate space, and how you got to where you are today? Well, getting started was actually uh, kind of mandatory for me because when I first started investing in real estate, I didn't have any money. I mean, I literally had nothing, and I was borrowing money off credit cards and that kind of stuff to fund house flips. So. I had no choice but to get started using other people's money, and and that's what I did. So when I first got going, uh, you know, I just uh, you know after I'd done about a dozen flips on my own using like what however I could borrow money, I had done enough of them that I quit my job. And uh, I was in law enforcement, so when I I quit my job, I went to the police station and said I, I put in my two weeks' notice. Everybody come to this event. I'm going to talk about real estate. They all came. I talked about real estate. I walked out of the room with $500,000 of investors and every one of them was carrying guns and knew how to use them. So that was my getting jumped into uh, the fundraising business. <laughs> kind, of, kind of a scary way to do it, right? <laughs> well, preservation of capital becomes uh, ingrained in you when you know your life is at stake. So, <laughs> so Praxis Capital, your, your company, is a vertically integrated real estate private equity firm. Could you take us over um, a high-level overview of what a vertically integrated investment firm looks like? Yeah. So, you know, when, when I started in this business, you know, I told that story about, you know, raising money for my ex-coworkers. That was 20-something years ago when I did that. Uh, since then, we've obviously grown quite a bit. Uh, you know, we started out in the house flipping business, but now I've, over the decades have grown to this vertically integrated multifamily company. And so essentially... We buy, you know, 100 unit and up multifamily properties all across the country uh, in growth markets, mostly in Arizona, Texas, Georgia, and Florida, and, you know, a few other markets that have the demographics that we're looking for. Uh, Vertically integrated basically just means that we control the whole process, uh, soup to nuts. 
uh, all the way from acquisitions, all the way through management. So we have our own property management company. Uh, we manage all of our own assets, uh, and we have you know we have complete control over all uh, operational and accounting functions in house. Now, why why do it that way rather than outsource? Well, we did outsource when we first started. So you know when we started growing our multifamily platform. We were using third-party property managers in in the areas where the properties were located. So if we bought a property in Dallas, Texas, we'd have a property management company based in Dallas that's uh, specialized in uh, that class and sector of multifamily in in that area. And that works fine when you're getting started and you've got a couple properties or maybe even a handful or a few properties. But as we've grown, we had basically two different needs that we were trying to fill. One need was uh, operational and accounting integration where, you know, we had, instead of getting a monthly report from a variety of different property managers and then having to assemble all that into meaningful data, now we had, you know, enterprise grade software and solutions that literally start at the property level and go all the way up to the corporate level. So, you know, somebody on site at a property can get a water bill and input it in the system and it's, it's corporate wide. We have everything right there. All the financials are integrated. So that was part of it was, it was does that operational control. The second piece of it was as you're growing and you want to acquire more and more real estate, you need more and more capital. And our goal has always been to attract institutional investors that can write the big checks, you know, guys that will come in and, and write a 10 or 20 or $30 million check into your investment to grow the platform. And generally speaking, Groups that can write checks like that want to see that you have complete control of the real estate. They want to see that you're self-managing and they want to see that you have tons and tons of experience. And, you know, in order for us to have the tickets to that game, we needed to, uh, we needed to bring that function in-house. So when you're starting off acquiring multifamily real estate, you're outsourcing all these tasks, then you decide to vertically integrate. I mean, you're essentially at that point running multiple different businesses. What are some of the things that change business to business that you kind of had to figure out how to optimize, if that makes sense? Like, what, what are some of the, the operational challenges that you faced um, learning these different types of businesses and how to, I guess, streamline those operations as you integrated them into your overall business structure? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. And I highly encourage anybody that's considering doing this not to learn the business. And I literally, did not learn it and have not learned it because that's not the way to do it. The way to do it is to bring in experts who already know how it's done and they set this up for you. So, you know, when we created this platform, you know, I brought in a CEO to run our property management company, you know, and the guy that's running it has been in the business for 40 years. He's managed about 41,000 units. He's set up national multifamily management footprints six times in his career for some of the largest institutional players in the country. And that's what we need in order to flip a switch from using you know, a scattered array of third-party management to bringing something in-house on a national scale. If you're trying to go in and go, I'm going to try to figure this out and I'm going to learn by doing and, and making mistakes, you're going to learn a ton, but it's either going to take you an eternity or you're going to lose tons of money in the process. And that just wasn't the way to go. So your advice is to not try to get in too much into the weeds, rather just stay rather high level and just simply hire the people 
who, who know what they're doing and let them do what they do best. And by doing that, you'll in turn be successful. You will. And, and, you know, and you, you watch what's going on and, you know, as, as the leader of an organization like this, my role is really to make sure that absolutely everything is going according to plan. And that means staying very involved. One thing I don't get into the weeds on is property level uh, management because those weeds are really tall and uh, you know, you'll get lost in them in a hurry. But you don't need to be in the weeds as the leader of an organization such as this on the property level, you can use, you know, key performance indicators and financials and, you know, property and occupancy reports to see exactly how things are doing. And we have constant, uh, you know, team uh, management team, uh, telephone conference calls and video conferences and that sort of stuff to make sure that everything's on track. And, you know, my role really is to, to make sure it stays there. So I think some people would think that if you are in the weeds, then you are intimately aware of what's going on in the business. You can make changes. You can make sure the operations are optimized and all of that. But you, you've said something really interesting where you say that, you know, I'm not going to be in the weeds, but I am going to be involved. I'm going to be tracking things to ensure that the business is on track. So what, what sort of things are you looking at that's higher level than the weeds? <laughs> yeah, that's a great question. So you know, I, I, twice a week, I get reports on every property in our portfolio. And I can see what the occupancy is. I can see what the delinquencies are. I can see how many uh, notices to vacate they've received and how many leases they've signed so that I can tell, you know, are we getting ahead or behind? I can see how much we've collected. I can see our income versus our projected income, our expenses versus our projected expenses. NOI actual versus projected. Uh, I've got an asset management dashboard. I can literally log in at any time and see all the performance indicators in every property in our portfolio at a glance, both in numerical and chart form. So it's really easy to kind of pick out problems. And you know, you start noticing, like, you know, this property is performing over projection on delinquency loss. Why is that? What's the collection problem? And that's when we have the conversation with you know, the management team of, you know, what's going on at this property and, you know, why are these things an issue? Yeah. So that's what I was just about to ask. Like if you see some of these key performance indicators turning red, specifically around like leasing. So my occupancy is going down, my economic vacancy is going up. What steps are you taking at that point to kind of dig into the problem and solve it? So on the management side, you know, the kind of the organizational chart is you've got an on-site manager who's an employee that literally is on the property overseeing day-to-day operations. And then in addition to that, we have our chief operating officer who is kind of their uh, liaison and interfaces with them on a multiple times per day basis. And then we have the CEO of the management company. And so generally speaking, we don't have to have a call because we see a, a KPI sliding. You know, We're already having calls all the time and we're looking at all these KPIs together on a routine basis. And, you know, we have a conversation with, okay, well, why are delinquencies increasing at this property? And, you know, what they're going to do is they probably already know. They just tell me the answer usually, but let's, let's just play along for a minute and say, they don't know. Their next step would be to get on the phone with the onsite manager and find out what's going on. But generally, since they're talking on a multiple times per day basis with site staffs, they know exactly what and they'll, they'll just say, okay, well, at this property we're having, you know, this issue or that issue or, you know, whatever the case may be. And then it's just, all right, what do we do to change that or fix that? 
Awesome. That's awesome. So one of the things that we always ask people, well, I don't want to say always, but one of the things we try to ask folks that are putting these bigger deals together is how do you go about your underwriting process? Like what, how does that compare to like maybe a mid-sized multifamily or a very large multifamily? How do those two compare maybe to other sorts of assets that you've picked up in the past? Can you walk us through that process? Yeah. Well, underwriting is, it's a little personal because really what are you solving for when you're underwriting multifamily real estate? Uh, you're solving for some type of performance indicator, a value on some type of performance indicator, right? And whether that's an IRR, a cash on cash return, an equity multiple, whatever the case may be. And that's a very individual decision. So, you know, there's some people out there that they underwrite to a cap rate. You know, they're like, oh, I want to buy at a nine cap. And it's like, what, why do you care what the cap rate is? Cap rate means absolutely nothing to me. What means something is, you know, I want to get a 15% return on my money, or I need to get at least a 6% cash on cash return, or I want to double my money in five years. Those specific goals mean something. And when you're underwriting in this space, in the large multifamily space, what you're doing is you're setting a set of performance indicators, like goals and performance indicators, and you're solving for those goals using reasonable assumptions. And that's going to translate to a purchase price. So if, for example, uh, you know, and, and for me as a, as a syndicator, I'm not solving to my own whim. I'm trying to solve for what our investors want. And so we know that if the deal will throw off a 14% IRR over a 10-year hold with a larger IRR on a five-year hold and larger yet on a three-year hold, whether it's a half a percent or a percent or whatever the case may be, if I can hit those three tests, we can get that funded all day long. So I'm solving for that IRR. The next thing I've got to do is I've got to back into how you get there. So to get to an IRR, it's all about a market study. What are similar properties renting for? And that sets your top line income. And from there, it's, a, it's just an exercise of subtraction. So you know what you can get in terms of rent. Now, what are your economic losses going to be? You know, what's market vacancy? What's the property's vacancy? Uh, what are concessions like in that area? What kind of bad debt is this tenant base going to leave you with? All of those different things. What are the expenses? Both your expenses that you are used to uh, seeing on your balance, on your financial statements, along with the property taxes for the property under your purchase price. What are the historical utilities and what kind of, what's your payroll expense going to be? And you're subtracting all of those things. And then it's just a matter of sliding the price left or right until you get the uh, performance that you're looking for. That's what underwriting large multifamily is all about. That's, and it's different than single family homes where you're saying, I want to get a hundred bucks a door in cash flow. So in terms of like doing market research on what are the rents of similar properties, how do you go about that? That to us is like kind of the, the most shoe leather that we will do. You know, you will wear out a pair of sneakers doing this task because there's really only one way to do it, and that's to visit the properties. And so that means, you know, you're going to go and visit the subject property. You're going to figure out what are the most applicable rent comps to the property that we're acquiring, and you're going to go visit those rent comps, and you're going to look at what are they getting in rent? And what is the condition of the units? And what amenities do they offer? And then you're going to compare that to the property that you're doing your study for to determine, are you going to be better than, equal to, or less than what they can achieve? And then you just have to make an opinion of what that future rent's going to be after you acquire the property. Excellent. All right. Last question on this topic. 
you were talking about it's it's very personal. You set goals and then you underwrite to those goals. Have you found it harder to find properties that meet your goals in today's market? Not really. It's always been hard. I suppose, you know, when we were buying stuff 10 years ago, it wasn't hard. You know, then, you know, nobody wanted to buy real estate and you could be, you could be really sloppy in your underwriting and still get the deal and still perform very, very well. We actually have a few clients that picked up property in like 10, 11, and 12, 2010, 11, and 12, and have just absolutely dominated. (laughs) Oh yeah, we, we did too. And, you know, it's like anything I bought back then when we finally sold out of it, it was like high twenties, low thirties, IRR you know, over four and five year holds, uh, you know, just crazy kind of numbers. So we're not going to, we're not going to achieve those kinds of crazy numbers. And if we were underwriting 30% returns, we'd probably never buy a thing because nothing's going to get there. But what's certain and what's definitely different between underwriting today and underwriting 10 years ago is that you have to be enormously precise. Uh, 10 years ago, you could be really sloppy. You could have really kind of rudimentary underwriting tools and just get somewhere close and still probably get it. Today, you've got to have everything down to the dollar. I mean, you've really got, you know, we've refined our underwriting tools so substantially over the last 10 years that it's an incredibly complex underwriting model, but it's designed for absolute precision and you need to have that. Having said that, we still have to underwrite a hundred deals to buy one if we're lucky. Got it. Guys, so we switching gears a little bit. We do work with a lot of GPs, uh, general partners and, and limited partners as well. And the limited partners tend to really complain about poor investor relations and late K1s. And you know, just, just in fact, just shortly before this call, I got off a, a call with a large crowdfunding site and they stated that uh, one of the number one complaints of their limited partners was late K1s. And you know, you mentioned that Prax Capital has a great accounting system um, throughout you know, the vertical integration, and you do work with large investors. So I guess my question to you is, how does having this accounting system and, and clean accounting records uh, help when filing taxes? Does it help file taxes on time for you? Oh, it makes all the difference in the world. You know, there's no excuse for late K1s. I mean, you know, in, in my opinion, what we pride ourselves on is I want our investors to call us and tell us that, Hey, I'm in 40 deals and yours is the first K one I get every year. You know, that's what I want to hear from our investors. And it's not that difficult. You know, we, um, on January 3rd, I'll probably out of, uh, we do, I think we're up to 52 tax returns we're doing right now. And on January 3rd, I'll have mm, about 25 to 30% of those to my CPA firm already. I'll have the rest of them by January 15th. And the only ones that I wait until after that are my personal ones because I don't care because I got to wait for all my K-1s from all the other ones anyway. So, you know, if I have all of that stuff to our accounting firm by middle of January, there's no reason. And we have a large accounting firm that we work with and they, they blast through it. I mean, they've got a whole staff dedicated to our platform. And we'll have our K-1s out by no later than March 15th is about the latest we've ever gotten a K1 out. But we've even had our K1s. We've, we've sent K1s out at the end of February before. So, you know, it's really just a matter of being organized. If you're organized throughout the year and you're inputting your information into a robust system as you get it, as opposed to the old shoebox method of accounting where you throw the receipt in the shoebox and then, you know, when the accountant says, like, if you don't make your tax appointment pretty soon, 
I'm not going to have your return done in time. You're like, oh my God, let me get my shoe box out. And I'll start tabulating everything or I'll, lay, or I'll leave it on your desk on Monday. Right? Yeah. If that's your method of accounting, you're going to have late K-1s. So just be organized. You know, it's interesting. So we, we work with a lot of syndicates and funds and some of them would do the accounting for, and those we're always getting out the door really early in the year. But every once in a while, you get one of those clients that comes in, in in March or late February, and they're like, hey, I need this done by March 15th. And it's always it's always a bummer when we have to say, we just can't get that to you by your deadline, man. Like we, we're, our hands are tied. Um, you know, we, we understand the pain because we don't want any of our syndicates or funds to have to file past March 15th for that very reason that you said. I mean, the way that we look at it is if you are raising money, you've got an investor that's investing 100K in your deal or, or well, in your case, $30 million, <laughs> which is a little bit of a different ballpark. But for most of the syndicates out there, they got an investor which investing 100K in their deal. They're probably also investing 100K in five other deals. Well, if they've got the next 100K popping up, they're going to reinvest with the deals, or at least they're going to consider the folks who appear to have their operations in order, right? They're getting those K1s out on time. They, they're developing that trust. You make me wait until October 15th to file. I'm probably not going to reinvest with you. <laughs> That's absolutely true. And, and we have hundreds of investors at the $100,000 level. You know, don't get me wrong. Our core business is fed by the individual investor that's investing 100, 200, 250, 500. You know, that's very common here. And the last thing that I want to be doing is spending my time on the phone consoling investors because they can't get their tax appointment on time. And it's not that difficult. But I mean, look, if you want to do your CPA firm a favor, just be organized and get them the stuff early. If you expect them to work miracles for you, it's just not going to happen. You know, The reason that we wait for K-1s is not because we haven't gotten the information. It's more often because our uh, accounting firm is waiting for the software vendor to release that year's uh, software. And you know that's what happened this year with the new tax law and then the government shut down. And you know, the, uh, the tax prep software didn't come out until sometime in the early or mid-February. Otherwise, we would have had our stuff done even earlier than that this year. So just get your information in soon. You know, make it a priority. I want to go on vacation to Hawaii on January 15th for two weeks. That means that everything has to be into the CPA before I leave so they can work on taxes while I'm gone. Yeah, 100%. So, you know, you've been around the block with the real estate investing. I'm sure that you've seen a lot of different tax strategies. Uh, what, what's your favorite tax strategy that you're using right now? And uh, do you have like a story or experience or anything that you've done in the past that has been incredible? Gosh, you know, <laughs> not really. I mean, probably the, the you know that we do use cost segregation. So you know, running a cost seg analysis on our properties, I, I you know, I think has saved our clients money. That's probably you know one of my most favorite tax strategies. But geez, outside of that, you know. You guys are really creative at this kind of stuff. For me, I always kind of look at it like sooner or later, Uncle Sam's going to get you. And I don't care you know, how much you can save or defer until later. You're going to be paying that sooner or later. So I'd rather just assume get it out of my way now. But you know, I suppose that's probably not the best way to approach taxes. But, uh, <laughs> it pains me to hear, Brian. It pains me to hear. Yeah. Uncle Sam will get his fair share. The there you go. There is fair. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's good. Yeah, a lot of our clients use cost segs as well, especially with the 2018 tax code changes. Now you've got 100% bonus depreciation. So we've been seeing a lot of the syndicates, a lot of the funds apply that and get some pretty solid tax savings for, for their investors. So Significant. Yeah. yeah. 
So, you know, we ask pretty much everybody who comes on our show, you know, what their favorite mobile app or piece of tech that you're currently using in your business. So at this point in time, what would be your favorite mobile app or, or piece of tech? Geez, my, my favorite piece of tech has got to be Google Maps <laughs> because, you know, this allows me to actually tour any piece of real estate from anywhere in the world. So I think that's one of my favorites. Another one, you know, I really like that I've been using a lot is called Justice Maps. It's, I think it's justicemaps.org. And it's just a, uh, it's a graphical representation of a variety of income levels by census tract. So if you're looking for the median income in the area of a property that you're looking at, you can go to Justice Maps, I think it's justicemaps.org, and put in the property address and you can see what the median income is in the census tract surrounding that property, which is, uh, which is kind of helpful. So that's, that's my, uh, kind of my, my newest favorite piece of tech. That is interesting. I just pulled it up. Yeah, it's justicemap.org. We'll throw it in the show notes. Definitely something to check out. Yeah. Before we wrap up for today, is there any words of wisdom or pieces of advice you have for uh, the investors out there who do invest in the multifamily space? Uh, Passively or as sponsors? I guess either or. (laughs) Well, probably a different advice for both. If you're a passive investor investing in the offering of a sponsor, uh, my best advice is to spend an outsized amount of time focused on who you're investing with. And I don't necessarily mean the other uh, passive investors, but who is the syndicate sponsor? Who's putting the deal together and what is their experience? How long have they been in business? How many deals have they done? You know, what do they have under management currently? You know, what footprint and experience do they have? It is absolutely critical that you pick the right sponsor because a really good sponsor can make the best out of a really bad situation, but a bad sponsor can completely screw up a perfectly good real estate deal. So sponsor due diligence is critical. If you're on the sponsor side, this is kind of the reverse of the same thing, right? If, if you want to attract the most investors, be the best. And by that, I mean underwrite conservatively, not conservative like everybody says they do, but really underwrite conservatively and make sure that you're, uh, you're applying the proper uh, economic vacancy uh, in your assumptions and make sure that you're uh, being thoughtful about your exit cap rate and make sure that you're raising enough money where you aren't going to run out and you have enough cash reserves uh, and that your rehab budget is sizable enough to be able to accomplish the renovation plan that you're putting forth. If you underwrite really well, you'll find that you get a really robust following from investors. And that's one thing that you know I think we've benefited from a lot as people talk about the, the quality of your underwriting. And if they're saying good things, word of mouth travels and uh, you can raise a lot of money just off of word of mouth. And, you know, Brian, I have a, a bonus question for you. And, you know, we understand you're not a financial advisor. You don't give financial advice. But for limited partners, a lot of times they do ask me, it's like, you know, you know, Tom, how much asset allocation you know, in, my, in my overall portfolio, what percentage should I dedicate to private real estate investments? And oftentimes the advice I see online from people in that financial advisory community is often really low. It's like, you know, really low, if not like, you know, under 20%, if not less. Do you have any thoughts or opinions on, on that? Well, my opinion, and this is all that it is, is that uh, most people who are giving advice on this topic, uh, who are qualified to give advice on this topic, are financial advisors. And financial advisors make their living selling conventional investments. So it would be a little bit of a you know shooting self in foot scenario to say, 
put your money in private real estate and forget about you know this um, you know conventional investment space. So it's not surprising that the run of the mill advice would be you know put in ten or twenty percent. Now on the flip side, you know we sell you know our product that we offer is interest in real estate syndications. So we would be in my best interest to say invest 100% of your net worth into real estate offerings. I think the truth lies somewhere in between, right? If you're if you're thoughtful about where you see the stock market going, where you see the economy going and where you know what you fear is is around the corner that may be threatening you and avoiding those things, uh, you'll figure out an asset allocation that works for you and I think I think it's different for different folks. Yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think it all comes down to uh, risk too. You know, how much risk you want to take on and and diversifying your portfolio. So, you know, I would have to agree there that there is uh, definitely biases on both sides of the coin. And I guess you just have to, as an investor, you, know, you have to just think critically about your own portfolio, where you are in your life, etc., and make your own decision. Because you know, like I said, either way, you're gonna find a you're gonna have uh, you're gonna have some bias there. But so if our listeners did want to uh, learn more about you or connect with you, what would be the best way for them to do so? Well, there's two ways, really. Uh, praxcap.com, that's our website. It's P-R-A-X-C-A-P.com. Uh, there's information in, on that site about what we're doing here at Praxis Capital. Uh, the other way is through biggerpockets.com, which is our online real estate networking site. People go on, they ask questions, uh, get answers, like participate in that, in that site. Uh, all the time, and you know, I know Brandon's on there too. And you know, we um, we like to uh, talk real estate, and that's a great way to either get a hold of me or even get answers from from that site. Awesome! So we'll go ahead and drop that in the show notes uh, below for everybody who wants to check that out. And uh, thanks again for coming on the show, Brian. It's been a, a pleasure having you on today. Thanks for having me. I appreciate you guys letting me be here. Thanks for listening to today's show. If you enjoyed the show, please find us on iTunes and leave us a review. You can also email us at contact at therealestatecpa.com with any feedback or topic suggestions. We are always taking on new clients and with the new tax laws in play, you really don't want to navigate this alone. Let us help you save money on taxes and with your accounting and CFO needs. To become a client, navigate to our client page at therealestatecpa.com and fill out a web form with as much detail about your situation as possible. Thanks so much for listening. Have a great rest of your week.